Kortoff boys beating each other, Judith is like, that, is, uh, that wasn't part of the script. And Ray leans over to me and goes, that is part of my script every day. <laughs> that is part of my script every day. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. What an awesome job Miriam Keys did on that, eh? Yeah. Judith and Miriam, another round of applause. So good. Man. We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read it and then we're going to kind of move through it and talk about how it connects to the Christmas story, the incarnation of Jesus. Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our current series is, I've entitled The Thrill of Hope, and we're exploring how the Christmas event, the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ becoming flesh, becoming a human being, how that should kind of electrify us with a, with a hope and, and challenge us with what it means to live out our Christian calling today. Now today we're, giving, we're looking at a text that gives us sort of a behind-the-scenes view of the Incarnation. If you think of the kind of classic Christmas story accounts in Matthew and Luke's Gospel with the shepherds and the angels and the nativity scene, so to speak, that kind of gives, if you think of that as like the play, that's the, that's the front stage that everyone's seeing. Philippians 2 is kind of going behind the curtain and looking at all of the pre-work and behind-the-scenes work that led and uh, that led to that moment and was revealed in that moment. And what we do when we go behind the curtain, when we move past kind of the window display of the Christmas story, and we look at Philippians 2, 1 to 11, it really, we discover, I think, a whole new set of implications for what it means to uh, call ourselves Christians, what it means to live out the Christian life, what it means to allow Christmas to kind of change and challenge us. So let's start by looking at the first few verses. This is Paul writing. He's writing to a church in Philippi. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Okay, so Paul is writing 
to a church in Philippi. He's writing from prison. He talks about his chains in the book. He wants to encourage them forward into deeper unity. Obviously, by inference, they are not like-minded as a church. They uh, didn't have the same love. They weren't on the same page in terms of being one in spirit and one in mind. There was a, some level of disunity born of personal preferences or personal priorities. And although we don't know how significant that disunity was, it was something that Paul wanted to coach this church out of. So right away, this is a passage that is applicable to many churches. Because I don't know about you, but my experience in church has often been that there are, there's a certain level of disunity. Not everyone is on the same page. Not everyone is living out of the same love and purpose and hope. So this is Paul trying to coach them into greater unity. Now, how does he do it? Well, if you were a church consultant, put on your kind of church consultant hat, and a church had hired you to come in and say, we need fresh eyes. Our church is just uh, coming apart at the seams. There's a lot of disunity. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of elephants in the room that no one wants to mention. We would like to become a church that's really unified and, and, and loves each other and kind of like that idealistic vision for what church could be. We want to get there, but we don't know how to get there. We feel very stuck. What would be the advice that you would give them? What would you say are some necessary first steps to maybe not solving the whole issue overnight, but starting to build some momentum, make some progress? Well, let's give ourselves the benefit of the doubt a little bit. We'd probably get as far as verse 3, maybe verse 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider other people better than yourselves. That's, that's good advice. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, good advice. Don't be vain. Don't be prideful. Don't be conceited. Um, operate out of a humble posture. Try and see other people as... Um, don't, don't just look to your own interests. Not that that's wrong. But try and take into account other people's perspectives and kind of what they need and what they're longing for, what they're hoping for. So that would be good advice. In a sense, you could say, be nicer, be more respectful towards one another. And Paul begins there. And notice that Paul calls out two core motivations that for the Philippian church and for this church and for all churches have no place. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is just essentially self-centeredness. It's an ambition to have more rooted in how that positively impacts my life. So this is a person who thinks kind of what's in it for me? How are other people making my life better? How is this church working for me? How do I get what I, how do I extract what I need from this community of people? Paul says you don't you should never do anything out of selfish ambition. That is no place in the Christian's life. That is no place in the church. The second thing he says is vain conceit. And this is a sense of kind of smug superiority over and against other people. If you have vain conceit, then you essentially uh, struggle with a sense of superiority. Um, Maybe also a sense of self-importance or a sense of entitlement. So this is a person who lives and moves and interacts in the community out of a posture of this people, this church owes me. 
do they understand who I am? Like I carry a certain amount of weight. I see myself in a certain way and I'm entitled to certain things. And this community is on the hook to deliver those things into my life. Paul says, for both of those, both of those postures have no place in the Christian's life. And both of those postures, by inference, are going to be at the root of a lot of disunity and a lot of problem, problems within the church. Now notice Paul doesn't stop there, right? That approach of, you know, don't be prideful, be humble, don't be vain, consider others as better than yourselves, that's only going to get you so far, right? You can only kind of give people good moral instruction, and that will move people a little bit, but it's not going to transform the culture. It's not going to transform people's hearts. So he does something else. He says, this is where I want us to end up, where we do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But how are we going to get there? Just trying to not do that? Just shaming one another? Just doubling down on, yeah, I'm really going to be selfless. I'm really, oh, willpower, willpower, religiosity. He doesn't do that. He actually directs their attention to the incarnation of Jesus. That element of the gospel specifically. He says, this is where we're going to go. This is how we're going to get there. And this is the counterintuitive move. He doesn't say, so just super try harder. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to consider the Christmas event. Now, this wasn't a Christmas message to the Philippian church. This was just basic, everyday, normal Christianity. But Paul points to the incarnation and the Christmas story, points to that baby in a manger, and he says, that holds the key, that event, and understanding and unpacking that event holds the key that is going to bring you into the kind of community and the kind of love and the kind of unity and oneness that everybody wants but is struggling to find. In verse 5, he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And the word attitude there, we have to be a little bit careful of because in our context, we might see attitude as a slightly superficial thing, something that I put on in the morning. I'm going to have a good attitude today. Um, so attitude and mood can sometimes overlap in our understanding. Paul is not saying you should have, you know, kind of put on a smile and kind of operate out of the same mood as Christ Jesus. The Greek word that's used there means mind or mindset, way of thinking, way of viewing something. And it goes way, way deeper than just kind of an, an attitude check. It holds together a few things. It holds together knowledge, what is true, um, intention, desire, and uh, the will. So it's activating truth and passion and the will. You should have the same whole person commitment and way of engaging life and seeing life as Jesus did. So this isn't something superficial. He's calling them to adopt an entire posture, heart, soul, mind, and strength in the way of Jesus. And then he says, in referencing Jesus, he says, Jesus who, being in very nature God, and this is really important for the flow of this argument, the word that he uses to, in nature is morphe. And that means essence in the Greek. And it doesn't mean, as some um, people might presume, that when they talk about Jesus as God, he was kind of in the form of God, or he was kind of like God in certain ways. It's Jesus who, being in the very essence God, the Greek word means, refers to the thing that makes something what it is. It's the strongest possible way you could say Jesus is God, and making sure that people don't misunderstand you by saying, like, what do you mean, like a demigod, or like a 
like on a different level than like God the Father or like y'all. No, no. Jesus, who in the very essence is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, grasped is, the, again, this is really important. This does not mean he was equal with God and he was trying to get at something. He was trying to grab hold of Godness. The word in, in Greek has the inference of um, to, to grasp something is to keep holding on to it. So Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be held on to. As something to be saying, no, I deserve this. This is mine. Like, like a little kid, right? When you go and take something. No, they, 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 they pull back and they're like, no, this is mine. They're grasping it. I'm entitled to this. Paul says, Jesus was God. He was entitled to hold on to all the power and privilege that comes along with being the second person of the triune God. But he didn't. He didn't grasp it. He didn't hold on to it. He could have. He was entitled to, but he didn't. Verse 7. He made himself nothing. He took on the very nature, and there's that word again, morphe, the very essence of a servant being made in human likeness. Now, this is super, super interesting. Well, I think it's super interesting. We'll play with some language here, but it's actually, it's really, really important whether or not it's really, really interesting. Um, the grammar in the Greek does not say, having been God, he then gave up being God and became human. That is not what the uh, grammar in the Greek says. Um, it's an imperfect tense of having been God, which means it continues. So the proper way to read that is Jesus, who was God, continued being God, but also became human. And this is super, super important. Jesus didn't stop being divine. He didn't empty himself of his divine essence. He emptied himself of all the power and privilege that he could have held on to. Remember we talked last week the incarnation wasn't inevitable. God didn't have to come. He could have said, I gave you a choice, you made your choice, now you've made your bed, you're going to lie in it. But he, he didn't consider his divine nature and privilege something to be held on to. He came, he made himself nothing. But in making himself nothing, he didn't become not God, he became the God-man. And he didn't become like 50% God, 50% man. In a mysterious way that if baffled theologians for 2,000 years, but it's actually theologically incredibly important. Jesus is the God-man who is fully human and fully divine. Jesus doesn't have dissociative identity disorder, where sometimes he's operating out of his humanness, and sometimes he's operating out of his divinity. He's always, he's constantly and always revealing fully who God is and what true humanity looks like. And that's important. That's why C.S. Lewis calls the incarnation the chief miracle. He says it's the most important miracle of the whole Bible. And he would certainly say it's the most important miracle of the gospel. Because if, the, if Jesus isn't fully human and fully God, the rest of the gospel is powerless. Think of the gospel, manger, cross, crown. Three foundational pillars. God becomes a human being, um, dies on the cross to atone for our sins, is resurrected to new life. That cross does not help anybody unless it is a fully human sacrifice. The sacrifice has to be completely and fully human because 
humanity has to atone for human sin. That's why the book of Hebrews says the blood of calves and goats, that's never really been able to take away sin. It's just delayed judgment. It's never really been able to take away sin. Human sin has to be atoned for by a human. So the cross only works as a sacrifice for human sin if the one on the cross is fully human. But if the one on the cross is just a human like you and I, sinful and broken, then it's not a perfect sacrifice. And it actually doesn't and can't atone in a total way for all of human sin. But if the human sin on the cross was also divine and perfect, and it was a complete and eternally perfect offering, then it could only be offered theoretically once for all of the sin. And so this is very important to understand. When Jesus becomes a human being, he doesn't stop being God, so that when he atones, the sacrifice is perfect and it's fully human and it satisfies all the requirements to atone for our sins. And then when Jesus is resurrected, that perfect sacrifice and resurrection can be uh, gifted to us as salvation. And we can live in newness of life because now we follow a Savior who is fully human. So we can now experience and begin to move into the kingdom of God here and now and stretching out forever. So this is a really, really important uh, theological point that Paul is making in Philippians. Notice what kind of human being God becomes. When God becomes a human being, this is very different from every other major alternative religion or myth where when the gods do come, they either come, like the Greek gods kind of came and they kind of popped in as people and sometimes they would deceive people and sometimes do really heinous, terrible, immoral things because they just could, because they were powerful and they had the opportunity to do that and kind of just play around with human beings like one might play with a mouse before you kill it. But the other thing that myths certainly believed is that if the gods were to ever make a visitation to earth, not in an incarnation way like this, but to just visit, come near human beings, they would come as powerful beings, right? I mean, that's, that's what you'd expect. If there was a god, if there were gods that really existed and they were to show up in any meaningful sense of the word, they would come as powerful beings, clearly revealing their might and their glory. But Paul says, consider this Jesus who he had all this glory, all this power, and he condescends. He literally comes down. And when he does, he comes not as a mighty royal king. He's not born in a palace. He doesn't come as a conquering warlord that can just obliterate his enemies. He comes in diapers. Very vulnerable. Comes into a family on the edge of poverty, refugees on the run. What, what does this tell us about God? He doesn't come as someone who's socially connected. He doesn't come with any of the privilege and the advantage that you would presume a great God and king would make a, make a kind of a grand entrance through. In fact, this servant identity is so central to Jesus' self-understanding of his mission. In Mark 10, 45, he says, For the Son of Man didn't come to be served. Again, he, he was entitled to that. I'm entitled to be served. If anyone has the right to come and say, You are to serve me, 
it is Jesus. That would not have been sinful or rude or prideful or vain conceit or selfish ambition. That would have been appropriate. But he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, if you've been in church a long time, that idea of Jesus coming as a servant, came as a servant, it's nice, it's neat, you're familiar with it, it just will probably not strike you as anything really controversial. It probably has very little emotional pull on your heartstrings. But I want to help you, I want, you to, I want to invite you to consider how revolutionary this idea is just in the grand scope of human history. There is nothing in any other worldview or philosophy that compares with this. This understanding of how power, how real, true, divine power would be displayed in the world, there's no correlate for this in any other religion or worldview. Friedrich Nietzsche, who I've been reading a lot this week, He's a German philosopher, and he's very, very influential. We're all very, very influenced by Nietzsche. By the end of this, you'll probably see why in, in some key ways, certainly as a culture, even if you've never read him. He has impressed certain ways of thinking about things on your heart. He's a German philosopher. He saw everything that we do, all of reality could be, some, could be summarized in what he called the will to power. Every single thing that happens, all of life is simply a will to power. Every human life, every human story is just the will to power. The world itself is the will to power, nothing else. And you yourself are the will to power, nothing else. What does he mean by the will to power? He said that under every endeavor, every single thing that we do, every artistic endeavor, under every professional endeavor, every sexual endeavor, every religious endeavor, whatever you do, you're ultimately doing it to gain more power. You are willing, you're striving to gain access to more power. Just like Adam and Eve, whose primary temptation was, you know, if you eat that fruit, you will become like God. Nietzsche said that is that is the bottom line of all of life. That explains everything about life. Everybody just wants to gain more power. One of my earliest memories of Christmas was making short lists, small lists, because I knew what I wanted, and I didn't want my mom to screw it up by giving her 20 things and her getting the wrong thing, so I kept it real tight, just easy. What do you want? Two things, just these two things. And of course, it led to a lot of stress on my mom's part because if those things weren't available, or then she was just, and she'd come back and say, you know, Jeff, sometimes it's hard to get, mom, two things. I operated out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, and these are the things that I want. But I remember on some of those lists early on, I wanted He-Man, He-Man action figures. I was seduced by this idea that you could just be this regular, normal guy, and all you had to do is hold a loft, a magic sword, and say, by the power of Grayskull. And the lightning would fall from the heavens, and you hold it, so you go, I have the power. And you're, like, and you're like a little five-year-old boy watching this, and you're like, all my dreams are coming true. I love this. amazing. You know, He-Man was this just ridiculous, over-the-top power fantasy that little boys, and then with the advent of Shira, little girls, they could play this out, right? 
man. And Nietzsche would look at that and he would have said, yeah, He-Man's on to something. All we really want is power. Nietzsche, perhaps more than any philosopher in history, has influenced our thinking as a culture. And he said, because the will to power, because everyone's just after more power, you have to be very, very suspicious of people when they posture like they're actually doing things for other people's benefits. Because what Nietzsche said is, you have to look at everything, but especially things that on the surface look benevolent or loving or kind. And he wrote an essay where he said, you have to look at it squintingly. So he would say, someone might say, I don't, this is will to power, that's not true. I just want to help the poor. I care about the poor. I, I volunteer a lot of my time with the poor. And Nietzsche would look at them squintingly. And he'd say, do you really want to help the poor? Or, in the friendship circles that you swim in, helping the poor is something that's highly valued. So do you want to help the poor because you know that's going to give you greater social standing amongst your peers? You'll become more popular in their eyes. You don't really want to serve the poor. You're serving yourself by serving the poor. I love to stand up here and proclaim God's word. I want to be about discipleship. I want to help our church grow and move into the mission of God. So says Jeff Strong. Nietzsche would say, is that really why you're preaching, Jeff? You really love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself? Is that really what you're doing? Or do you love the power that comes from an amplified perspective? You want the power that comes from being able to invoke the name of God to get people to do what you think is right. Do you really? You know, Nietzsche would always say, mm, we might think we're doing things for certain reasons, but he would say, I don't buy it. Everybody is just after more power. I help my coworkers at work all the time. Are you really trying to help them though? Or are you doing it so that your boss sees you and gives you a promotion? You get access to more opportunity and more money. See, Nietzsche's constantly, he invented, what that is is called the hermeneutics of suspicion. And that's pretty prevalent in our culture, right? People are very distrustful of institutions or people who talk a big game because their default setting is kind of like, what's, the, what's your angle? What are you after? That's a very Nietzschean way of thinking where you don't take people at their word. You're suspicious that what they actually want is they're using this nice-sounding word as a Trojan horse to get in and then to have control over you and power over you. For Nietzsche, every act, no matter how generous, no matter how seemingly benevolent, has to be held in suspicion. For Nietzsche, all of life is just a power play. Everything is just a, a constant wrestling of people trying to get more power. And for Nietzsche, power equals strength. The will to power means I have the ability to exert my will in the world, my will in my marriage, my will in my relationships, my will in the workplace. And I want more power because if I have more power, then I have more ability to do what I want to do. And I have more ability, with greater power comes greater ability to bowl over and to not have to worry about people who are trying to get in my way. Nietzsche actually said this was a good thing, this will to power. He said, what is good? All 
All. He says all, not some. All that heightens the feeling of power. That's good. All that heightens the feeling of power is good. The will to power. Power itself is good. And what is bad? All that is born of weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power is growing and resistance is being overcome. That's what it means to be happy. To be constantly growing in power. He says, and this is my idea. Every specific body, and he means person. So look around this room for a sec. Look at, just look at other people in this room and see them as a little sphere of power. A little sphere of the influence. They have a certain amount of economic, relational, educational, social power. He says, my idea is that every single person strives to become master over all the space and to extend its force. Nietzsche says, at bottom, we would all want to be in charge individually. We're all trying to figure out a way to be in charge and to have things our way, to exert our preference. But we're continually surrounded by other effects from other people, other little power bubbles that we realize, well, we can't just push over these people or push over that person. So we kind of come to an arrangement, what he called a union, as long as we're sufficiently related to gaining the same kind of power. So we'll make kind of deals with other people who have the same power desires that we have. And so we conspire together for power. And then he says the process just goes on and on and on. So in your marriage, in your family, in society, everything's just about power. People trying to get power. People trying to get power over other people. Now there's an element to what Nietzsche's saying, which is very, very insightful. But what I want us to hear really strongly this morning is that the incarnation, the incarnation itself shows us that Nietzsche was very, very wrong in his understanding of what the fundamental bottom line of reality is. And the incarnation shows us that Nietzsche was wrong in, his terms, of, in terms of his understanding of what power was and what it was for. The idea that every single person just seeks to become a master over other people and to exert their will and their force of personality and, and force of power and, 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 to, and to live out of this selfish ambition and vain conceit, of course that exists. I experience that temptation in my heart at times. I've lived moments of my life where that has been my defining agenda. Maybe you have. Maybe you know people who live out of that agenda. Of course, that is true because... Sin has corrupted the human heart. And sin has corrupted our understanding of power. So Nietzsche's right to look at that and say that is an expression of what it means to be human. But it's not the only expression of what it means to be human. And it's not the bottom line of the fundamental nature of reality. Power and the will to power doesn't make the world go round. See, in the manger, we see the fruit of a different kind of power. This is someone who could have exerted complete mastery and obliterated any resistance to their authority. But instead, they humbled themselves and they came as a servant. And they didn't come to be served, but to serve. This is someone who's voluntarily given up power over other people in order to enter into the weakness and meekness of what it means to be human. This is a power that is so strong. We're seeing in the manger a power so strong it's eventually going to destroy sin and death. But it comes to us 
in tremendous vulnerability and fragility. Verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, this Jesus, this God-man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This power not only didn't obliterate its enemies, but it took upon itself the judgment and violence that it was justified in giving to its enemies, it took it upon itself. Nietzsche doesn't have a category for this kind of power because he saw power as always over and against other people. But in the incarnation, we see, we see power's true nature and purpose. True power, true godly power is a very, very good thing. Adam and Eve are given dominion, which is power over creation in the garden. And as Christians, we're called to redeem power. And how do we do that? By using it for the sake of other people. True godly, holy power is good, and it's meant to be a blessing to other people as it's leveraged for the sake of other people. That's a really wordy way. Let me say it more simply. True power goes down in order to lift other people up. That's an understanding of power that Nietzsche couldn't, he couldn't get there. He always saw what power does is push other people down to get you up. That's what everyone's trying to do. But we see in the incarnation that the creator God defines power a very different way. He says, no, true power goes down in order to lift other people up. And so in that sense, and this is really critical to all of our lives, not just to Christmas, but 365. Philippians 2, 1 to 11 holds up the life pattern that Jesus' followers are to imitate. We are called to imitate the incarnation. Not that we incarnate God to people, we don't. That's a one-time event. Only Jesus did that. But we can, by the pattern of our life, of going down in order to lift other people up, we can point to the incarnation. We can point to the gospel. Can you see now why Paul goes back to the incarnation to instruct this church who has all, these, um, all this disunity and all these people trying to jockey for, what about my way? What about this? They're, they're, trying, they're trying to get power over each other. He says, you you have to go, you have to, you don't understand the gospel. Look at how Jesus came into your life. Look how Jesus influenced and changed you. Look how Jesus lived. Now you have to live that for each other. Here's my closing question. What are you doing with your power? What are you doing with your power? Everybody in this room has a certain amount of power. You might not have as much power as you'd like in a certain area, but you have power. You have relational power. You have economic power. You have physical power. You have educational power. You have recreational power. What are you doing with your power? What are you doing with your money? Are you going low with your money? Are you going down with your money, lifting other people up with your money? Or is your imagination just kind of constantly spinning on, how do I bring myself up with my money? How to make my life easier. How, um, how are you using power in your marriage? Are you taking the posture of a servant in your marriage in order that the other person will be lifted up? Or is your posture, well, I'll do that if they do that to me first. They, they there's some resentment there and I, I, I feel, I, I'm not going to serve that person. I'm not going to serve that person in that way. What are you doing with your recreational power? We all have a certain margin of free time that we have. 
Are we just constantly thinking, how do I use this to spend it on myself? This is really fun. Are we using our recreational power to go down in order to lift other people up? What about your words? Some of you here are students. Your words have the power of life and death when you go into classrooms and you're on your sports teams. You can use your words very easily to bring other people down and lift yourself up. The way of Jesus is, how am I using my words in such a way that I'm serving other people and I'm using my, the power of my words to lift other people up? Are you doing that? That's critical. How are you using your power? So not only is the will to power not the baseline cosmic force, Philippians 2.11 holds out another biblical promise and truth to us. Look what happens after Jesus' incarnational movement and his humble servant obedience. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see, do you see the, the promise and the pattern there? If we use our power in a godly, wise way, if we go down in order to lift other people up, God will lift up us up. God will exalt us. That's a, that's a major theme throughout Scripture. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself is going to get humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. A major characteristic of humility is not doing things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, considering other people better than yourselves. How do we learn to live like that? By reflecting on the incarnation, this event that leads to a pattern for a lifestyle for us, and then we imitate it. So let's this week, let's today, in one sphere of your life, let's take a step in going down and becoming a servant in order to lift others up. Let's pray. God, the incarnation is a gift that we didn't ask for, we didn't know we needed it, and you supplied it by grace. And as we move through Advent and as we move towards Christmas and we reflect and see these images of the nativity scene and we read about the Christmas story, God, thank you for this scripture in Philippians that kind of shows us a new understanding of what it means. Well, it shows us the love, the will to love that fueled the incarnation, not the will to power. And may it set our hearts on a, on a new path in our marriages, in our friendships, in our community, in this church, God as we look deeply into the gospel, may it change how we interact with one another. May we be a people who go down and use our power to lift other people up. In Jesus' name, amen.